Hey there, welcome back to the program. This is Jonathan Edwards from pureandsimplebible.com. I am so thankful that you're here, and I'm grateful to get to study the Bible with you. We are continuing a Bible study in Matthew chapter 10, and we are trying to move from being fearful to fearless. And I want you to have an open Bible and notebook because it's an expository study. We're trying to expose the teaching. We're trying to look at what the context teaches about this and appreciate what the disciples were going through and Jesus' message to his original audience, as well as make proper application for us today. Now, we're going to read verse 28 through 31, and then what I'd like to do is maybe ask a couple of questions about it that will kind of jog our memory from last week's Bible study. So are you ready to read? Matthew chapter 10, verse 28 says, And do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Okay, in that little paragraph, three times the word fear is used, that phobio, that Greek word fear. And it's this pattern. Verse 28 says, do not fear, rather fear. Verse 31, fear not, therefore. So do not fear, rather fear, and fear not, therefore. Okay, so there's this uh, this comparison of, of who we're not going to be afraid of, who we should be afraid of or have fear of, rather, and then the conclusion of fear not, therefore. So who are the apostles not to fear and why not? This is kind of the summary from last week. Jesus is saying, don't fear the people that you preach to. This uh, is a time of a limited gospel commission where they were to go out to the Jews of their local areas and they were really excited about it, but um, Jesus knew the reality of reaction. And so his encouragement is, don't be afraid. We went over that a lot last week, and we asked the question, what do we have uh, that we should be proclaiming from the rooftops? Especially if you look around at others, you feel intimidated, you feel like it's there's you don't have what some big groups have, the programs, the people, all of the, the money and everything that some of the these large groups have who may be a Bible-using um, group, but they're not a Bible-obeying group. And so what do we have? And we, we, we spend a whole lot of time trying to build that mindset of we have the kingdom and that we want to preach the kingdom and base our life off of the kingdom so that regardless of what... Um, others may be doing, we know that we're doing things based off of the kingdom. The way we dress, the way we act, the way we speak, the way we live, it's all based on that mindset of Jesus delivered me out of darkness and into his kingdom, right? So that's how God's redemption works. And so I'm not afraid because I know that I'm part of God's kingdom. And so Jesus, here we are in verse 28 through 31, Jesus is telling his apostles the, encur- the encouragement that he's giving is this. Even if the most extreme reaction to the gospel happens, that is, that you're executed. Even if the most extreme thing happens, they have not destroyed your soul. And so what he's trying to get them to uh, 
I guess, get at as far as a mindset is, what would you rather lose? Would you rather lose a few years on this earth and get an eternity's reward, or would you rather give up an eternity because you could have a few more years here in safety by not preaching the gospel? And I'll just say this, um, I'm trying not to be a fear monger in that, uh, you know, we face the same persecutions, at least in my neck of the woods, because we don't. I, I've never um, experienced somebody who, who actively tried to kill me for preaching. And I've been called a lot of names. I've been called a false teacher, and I've been called more or less a, an idiot, right? Uh, I've been called a bunch of names. And I've I felt, I guess, emotionally threatened, if you want to call it that, but I've never felt like anybody was trying to kill me. And maybe maybe you have. I don't know you, um, and I don't know maybe your background, but chances are those who listen to this podcast, so if you're an English speaker, typically you're from uh, cultures that are similar to mine where I'm growing up, then that means that we have not dealt with persecution the way the disciples did. But even if we did, if it really came down to it, if it came to the point where in, in my country or in your country, if the laws made Christianity legal and we were going to be put to death for it, then this ultimate reaction would be one that we need to think about. And that is, don't fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. What would you rather lose? A few years of this life to gain an eternity's reward? Or would you rather give up an eternity for a few years in safety here? So we're not to fear anyone, a man or a woman who might take our life. But it does say that we're supposed to fear someone. Verse 28 said, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. Who are we supposed to fear? Who has the authority to destroy the body and the soul in hell? Is it the devil? A lot of people think it's the devil. You know, they kind of see the devil as, uh, you know, the opposite of Jesus. Like they're these two equally powerful beings. You know, on Facebook, sometimes you might see some illustration where you've got Jesus on one side and the devil on the other, and they've got their fists raised like they're about to start boxing. Man, that couldn't be further from the truth, right? Uh, nowhere does the Bible teach that the devil is equal in power, like the, the exact opposite but equally powerful to Jesus. Uh, you know what the Bible does say about the devil in regard to, to our relationship with him? In Ephesians 6, verse 11, James 4, verse 7, we're to resist the devil, and we are to defy the devil. And you know what it says when we resist the devil? That he will flee. Right? He will flee. And so here's what I'd suggest to you about the devil, because Matthew 10 is not about the devil. A lot of people think it is. First is this. Don't overestimate Satan. He's not divine and not equal with God, so therefore he's not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. He's not omnipotent. He's not all-powerful. And he's not omnipresent, so he's not everywhere. He is limited in his knowledge, limited in his power, limited in his presence. The only way that Satan can tempt someone successfully is to observe and learn their weaknesses and then offer them the choice so that they can choose to be tempted. James chapter 1, verse 13 through 14. Great scripture to remind us that Satan's power is limited. However, just because his power is limited 
doesn't mean you should underestimate the devil. The devil is a master deceiver. Jesus called him the father of lies. He was a murderer from the beginning. And he's had thousands of years to hone his craft. I don't want to go against the devil in a one-on-one as far as creating temptation. Right? When you think about what Jesus did with the devil in Matthew chapter 4, um, where the devil was able to give him three temptations, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be up against him. I mean, I've got the roadmap of saying it is written like Jesus did. But Satan is a master deceiver, so I'm, I'm not going to have so much you know, hubris pride to think that I could overcome him. It's only through the power of the word like we read in James 4, verse 7, that we resist the devil and he flees from us. So don't underestimate him thinking that he's, you know, incapable of doing anything. But in Matthew chapter 10, right, this is where we're studying, Matthew 10, it says, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. It's not talking about the devil because the devil can't destroy your body and soul in hell. A lot of people think the devil is like in a Looney Tunes cartoon where Elmer Fudd gets uh, blown away by his own shotgun as he's trying to kill Bugs Bunny and his soul goes down to hell and there's the devil waiting by a big you know, pot and the, the character's soul goes into the pot and the devil's like a bulldog with little horns and a tail and he's stirring the pot laughing. Maybe that tells you something about my childhood. <laughs> in regards to uh, the way cartoons have influenced my view of the devil. But, you know, our culture thinks of the devil as this, like, being who in hell is the manager of hell. And he gets to clock in and out. You know, he gets a a nine-to-five job in hell. No, hell is punishment for the devil and his angels. So he is there as one who has disobeyed and defied God, and that is his reward where he will be punished in everlasting flame. Right? So then who is it who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell? Who do we fear? The answer is God. God is the righteous judge who has the authority to save or destroy. And you may be thinking, fear God? I thought we were supposed to love God. How can we love God? Why would God command us to, or why would Jesus rather be, command us to fear God? That doesn't sound like a loving relationship. That doesn't sound like what the Bible says. Oh, it absolutely is what the Bible says. Don't believe the watered-down message that many give that only suggests that God is a God of love and he is not a God of justice this old cosmic grandfather that they want him to be, who who just overlooks everybody's sin because he loves them so much. God is to be feared. And fear in the Bible, this sense of awe and reverence and dread in relation to God, is something that we should talk about for a moment. What, what is this fear that we are to have for God? I want you to think about it like this. God is like the sun in our solar system, right? We have a, a healthy fear, a sense of awe and reverence and dread for our sun. Uh, in our solar system, it's unique. There's nothing like it. It's power source. It's gravitational pull. Uh, everything else 
goes around the sun in our solar system, right? We understand the power that the sun has. We appreciate its life-giving energy, the warmth of the sun, but we also don't send astronauts to it because we know that if you get too close to the sun, you're going to get burned up. So what do we do? Do we do we say, oh, the sun, it could burn us up because we're going to get too close, so I don't want anything to do with it. You know, how dare that sun potentially burn us up, so, uh, you know, we're just going to dig underground and have nothing to do with it. Obviously, that's silly. But that's the way God works. God is a God of love and of justice. God is a God of mercy and of wrath. And when people hear about his justice and wrath, his judgment, and they think, oh, I don't want anything to do with that. And what they don't realize is that this is part of God's nature and that it's really something that is helpful. Because if God was not just and if God was not fair, then God would not be a God of love. And he wouldn't be a God of mercy. Now, let's return to Matthew 10. And I want us to notice something about this fear that we are to have of God. Notice that even though we're told to fear him, the point of this section is that the follower of Christ truly has nothing to fear. You see, if you're looking at your Bible, verse 28 says, Do not fear, rather fear. Verse 31, fear not, therefore. So that's odd. But if we just kind of meditate on the scriptures for a moment, you'll see that God values sparrows. In other places, the scriptures say that God knows the, the number of hairs on your head. And the point is that if God has such intimate knowledge of even the smallest of birds, the sparrow, then he surely knows your heart. Okay, so consider another scripture. I think about this one when I think about the fear of God. It's 1 John 4, verse 17 through 19. It says, By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also we are in this world. Therefore, or rather, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. So think about this. We fear God, but we don't have a fearful or that is a dreaded expectation of hell because we're not going there. If we're in the kingdom and if we're walking in the light as he is in the light, then the blood of Jesus washes away our sins, and we have fellowship with one another. 1 John 1, verse 7. Therefore, as Jesus said, we don't fear. We, we have this healthy respect, reverence, awe for the power of God. We have a healthy dose of reality about the way people are going to respond to the gospel. So we don't fear them. We fear God. But therefore, knowing that God loves us and that God is for those who are on his side. Therefore, we don't fear. Okay, with that in mind, we're going to jump into verse 32 and 33 and talk for this final section about being a fearless confessor. So Jesus, at this point, kind of pivots his message from those who are going on the limited commission to make an application. He makes it about them, but it's also including us because he says in verse 32, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. 
Now, at this point, you might be thinking this is kind of a a preacher sermon, right? Like uh, preachers preaching to preachers, you know. Brothers, we, we need to not fear when we preach. But what if you don't relate to that idea, you know? Brothers, we need to not fear when we preach. What if you're not a preacher? And I would suggest that the overwhelming majority of you are not preachers in the sense that we typically think about preachers. So was Jesus' message to the twelve only contextually for them and for preachers? Is that what these verses are? Of course not. Let's do a brief word study of the word everyone. Verse 32 says, so everyone. Well, who does that include? Everyone. Does that include preachers? Yes. Does it include non-preachers? Yes. What about new mothers? Yes. What about retirees? Yes. Does it include you? Yes. You see, Jesus may have been talking to the twelve, but it's not only about the twelve. And it's not only about preachers. We all, anybody who is a Christian, a, a baptized believer, somebody who is in the kingdom, has to be a fearless confessor. You've been called to be a fearless confessor. What does that mean? Let's read verse 32 again. It says, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. By the way, a lot of translations use the word confess, whoever confesses me before men. So I hope that doesn't confuse. The word confess or acknowledge in this verse comes from the Greek word homologeo, and it means to speak the same thing. And you know what that implies? To speak the same thing. A verbal confession. A verbal acknowledgement. If we are to speak the same thing as Christ, then we're supposed to be doing it verbally. Now, usually we talk about the verbal confession when one becomes a Christian, you know, like in Romans 10, verse 9 and 10. And, and then we say that, uh, you know, after that, it's a lifestyle confession where you confess by the way you live. But what Jesus is implying here is that a verbal confession is needed by his followers to the hearing of the world and not only to the hearing of the church. And so we talk about a verbal confession when somebody wants to become a Christian. But what I'm suggesting from this scripture is that we have a duty to offer a verbal confession to the world after we become a Christian. And so maybe we could break down verse 32 and 33 a little bit more by asking these two questions. How does a believer confess Christ? How do you acknowledge him? Then how does a believer deny him? Remember, that's the verses that we're studying. Any, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. And any, everyone who denies me before men, I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. So here's three ways a believer can confess Christ. Number one, we confess or acknowledge by verbally acknowledging Jesus as the Son of God and recognizing his deity. You could write down Matthew chapter 16, verse 16 through 18, or Romans 10, verse 9 and 10. We have, based off of these scriptures, a beautiful opportunity to confess Jesus as the Son of God. That confession is special because you know, you could say Jesus is Lord or Jesus is my Savior, 
But technically, somebody else could also be a Savior and Lord. But there's only one Son of God. And that's what makes that confession so special, is to say, I believe that unlike anyone else, that there's no one else like Jesus. He's the one and only Son of God. And this too, in my culture, you can say that phrase, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and it's not dangerous the way it might have been in the first century, and also in the way it is around the world today. I've been in places, I've lived in places around the world where for somebody to verbally confess, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the consequences of that confession is that their family may turn their back on them. They may lose their job. They may have their community outcast them. And so, it's a dangerous confession. And I invite any of you who are considering becoming a Christian, if you're listening to this, if somebody's shared this message with you, and you know that the time's coming when you need to confess Christ, when you get to say before others, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, I want you to feel the danger. It's dangerous because you are leaving a kingdom of darkness and coming into the power of the Son of the love of God. Okay, number two, how do believers confess Jesus? By outwardly obeying his word. That's what we call the lifestyle confession. And this is a good confession. If you were to walk away from this podcast and and take something away about the lifestyle confession, I would want you to take away that you need to do it. Right? Matthew 5, verse 13 through 16, we are to be salt and light. And you have to do what Jesus says to do. In 1 Peter 3, verse 1 and 2, wives actually win their husband to the Lord without even saying a word. Their lifestyle confession is so valuable to that relationship that husbands can can come to know the Lord through their wife's lifestyle. So I don't want to take away from the lifestyle confession at all. But what I would rather like to do is say, in addition to that, in addition to verbally confessing Jesus when you want to become a Christian, living a lifestyle of confession to others. Number three, a believer confesses Jesus by verbally telling others about his saving love. Matthew 28, 19, 20, and then this scripture, Matthew 10, verse 32 and 33. A lifestyle confession is not intended to replace the verbal acknowledgement of speaking the same as Jesus spoke. Now, you know, in an intimate relationship like marriage, it's easy because of the amount of time you're around that person to share Jesus through the lifestyle. But what I'm afraid happens sometimes is that we think, well, my lifestyle is good enough for my acquaintances as well. People that you see at work, but you really don't get to spend that much time around them. Or at school, your neighbors, kids on your uh, the parents on your kid's baseball team, right? The, the people you meet at the gym when you work out. And we think, well, my lifestyle's good enough. But what we don't think about is that when you don't drink at lunch with your coworkers and everybody else orders a beer and you don't order a beer, yeah, that might make them feel uncomfortable. But without the verbal explanation of how Jesus changed your life through sobriety, Right, That's so much more than just saying, well, I don't drink. And so 
we may not share our testimony per se, right? But what I would encourage for us to think about is to remember that we have been called out of darkness. And that darkness still reigns in the hearts of so many people. And God, in his infinite wisdom, uses the foolishness of man, the foolishness of preaching, like in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 through 21, it's through preaching that people come to know him. God could have put a big old jumbotron in the sky that uh, expresses everything there is to know about who God is and what he's done. But instead, he has given us that burden, that responsibility to share it with others. I want you to leave this conversation thinking about this idea that you verbally tell others of Jesus saving love. That's how you confess Christ before men. Don't leave here thinking that you have one and only chance, you know, uh, and every opportunity you you have to force it into the conversation. I don't think it has to be done in, in such forceful ways. In fact, I would invite you to find on my website a conversation I had with Brother Bob Cunningham, Thoughts on Evangelism. I can't remember exactly what it's called, but you can do a word search, I think, of Bob Cunningham in the Pure and Simple Bible podcast. And man, we have a great conversation about how to naturally share the gospel in a non-threatening way, a non-forceful way. It's a really good one, so consider that. Hopefully we've answered that question about how believers confess Jesus by verbally acknowledging him as the Son of God when they're ready to be baptized, by outwardly obeying his word through a lifestyle, but also by verbally telling others of his saving love. God gave you the responsibility and me the responsibility to share Jesus Christ with others. And preaching is the way we do it. So we got to do it. Okay, real quickly, and then I'm going to wrap it up. Uh, How does one deny Jesus? Because remember, Matthew 10, verse 32 and 33, it says, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father who's in heaven. But if you deny me before men, then I'll deny you before my Father. There's several ways one could deny Jesus. First, by open rebellion to his cause. Romans 1, 18-32. So sinners, when they hear the gospel, refuse to accept God's gracious plan. That's open rebellion to Jesus' cause. That would be denying Jesus. But for those who have accepted the gospel and obeyed it, number two, willful disobedience to God's word. Hebrews 10, 26. For Christians, when we deny Jesus' message, when we deny the Holy Spirit's power through the Word, the sovereignty of God. Hebrews 10.26 says those who go on willfully disobeying, there remains no longer a sacrifice for them. Number three, one can deny Jesus by not accepting those that Jesus accepts. To have any standard that somebody is unworthy of the gospel for any particular reason, is to deny that Jesus desires that all be saved. Matthew 24, verse 44 and 45, Galatians 3, 26 to 28. Yeah, God forbid that we ever look at somebody and make a judgment call that they're not worthy of the gospel, maybe by the clothes they're wearing, maybe by the language they speak, the color of their skin, the, the way they smell, the way they act. For us to say that person does not deserve the gospel 
you're denying Jesus because Jesus wants all to be saved. Number four, by not standing for the truth in the face of persecution, Revelation chapter 2 and 3. We have it easy in our country right now, and I don't want to promote fear, but these times they are changing. It could be that maybe it is changing for the worse long term and that the good old days are gone. There could be a time whenever we have to recognize that preaching the gospel is going to land us in jail or land us at odds with the mob. What are you going to do? You either stand up for truth and preach, or you deny Christ. So, Matthew chapter 10, verse 26 through 33. Great scripture, great chapter. Jesus preparing his apostles for a limited commission and telling them many times, do not fear, do not fear, do not fear. And what we take away as students of the word is this beautiful set of scriptures in its context, wonderful applications so that we can go from being fearful to fearless, fearlessly, shouting from the rooftops that we are in the kingdom, that the kingdom is here, and that others can be in the kingdom if they'll let go of sin and accept that Jesus Christ is the Son of God being baptized for the remissions of their sins. All right, that's where I'm going to leave you today. Thank you for the last couple of weeks of it just being me. I don't have a guest. Hopefully I'll get a guest back in studio soon, and we can have some great dialogue between me and another person. Until then, this is Jonathan Edwards. Always remember God loves you very much, and I do too. Lord willing, see you soon. Well, I'm here to tell you a story, a story that is true, about a judge by the name of Gideon. He was a man like me and you.